I kept trying to fill things into that hole and, and nothing was working. And all the while in the background, there's just this substance abuse that's, that's festering and growing deeper and larger and, and more ugly. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Today, we have Jake Evans joining us. Jake, thanks for being here, man. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's been a while to set it up, but I'm glad we finally f- figured it out. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Best things come to those who wait. Um, Does it hurt you? All the colloquial sayings. That's right. Why don't we go back and uh, tell us a little bit about your life growing up and yourself, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of weave our way through as we go. Okay, perfect. Well, you know, it's always easy to, to talk about yourself. It's hard to figure out where the beginning is um, in terms of the journey. And so I think sometimes me setting it up and talking a little bit about my parents kind of helps provide a little bit more context. And so my dad is one of five, the only of his siblings to, to go to college, to, let alone professional school. He wound up becoming um, a family practitioner dentist, owned his own practice, very lucrative, um, self-made man, uh, grew up with nothing and, and built his own slice of heaven, if you would. And, um, you know, he understood the, the value of hard work. Um, he understood, he definitely understood discipline. Um, he understood a lot of things that his dad taught him and tried his best to put those things on to me. But again, like he's somebody who, who built himself up from nothing. So um, he had that going for him. My mom is one of four. Um, she's a self-made woman too, but didn't have to work as hard as what my dad did. She's extremely intelligent. Um, rose herself up to top 1% in the federal government. She's a presidential appointee. And they met in high school. So they're high school sweethearts. Um, they married, had two kids and two-story house and you know, th- three rooms and a white picket fence, the whole nine, the quote-unquote American dream. Um, but both of them had to, had to work for it, right? So, and they're not underachievers either. And so for me, whenever I was growing up in that environment, if I came home with like a B or 90%, the saying was, is that you left 10% of the information behind. So hmm. it's not that they were perfectionist parents, it's that they, they expected you to do your best and they knew my aptitude. And so for me to do anything less than my best effort was, was unacceptable. And, you know, I grew up in a cul-de-sac in Martinsburg, West Virginia. And if you don't know where that is, it's like right outside of the DC Baltimore area. Um, you, you have, you know, the, inner city-esque type thing. And then you have like suburbia and then you have backwoods. And so like you have everything all in one, all in one city. And I was the only kid in my subdivision who was doing chores at the age of like six, six, seven, eight, nine, um, cutting down trees, stacking wood, doing all the things that like my dad did in order to build character, but I'm do- like, none of my peers are doing them. Right. So I'm building up like little resentments cause I'm you know, comparing myself to everybody else. Right. And my parents were super serious about building their careers and providing a better life for their children than what they had. Like both of my parents, there were times whenever, you know, they would come home and all that they would have to eat were like Franks and beans. And they never wanted that for their kids. They wanted their kids to have the absolute best life that they could. And sometimes, unfortunately, that sacrifice was, um, you know, more dollars equaled more time at work, which equaled less time with kids. Got and it. so my sister and myself were oftentimes the first kids dropped off at the daycare. The last kids picked up when my parents who were, they were high school sweethearts. And when they went through their, you know, their rough patch, they had never been apart before and they separated for a while. And like when that happened, there were times whenever my sister and I actually spent the night at the babysitters in the same clothes the next day that we were in the night before. And I give all of this stuff um, as pretext to explain. It's not that like, you know, we look at some people sometimes and we think that like, wow, they have it better than we do. Right. Or we look at people and we think like, you know, their life can't be that bad. But in reality, like trauma is relative. Right. And so to the person who, you know, where a parent or a child, um, you know, isn't being raised by their parent and they're pulled from CPS um, to go live with an aunt or an uncle, um, you know, they feel abandonment. And for a child who's the first kid dropped off before they're even the sleeps out of their eyes in daycare, then the last kid picked up, sometimes not even picked up, that feels like abandonment. And so trauma is relative. And, and, you know, looking back on it through my 30 year old lens, I can see 
that like it's it's better because like you know on the weekends my parents were there but like they weren't there during the week and they weren't there most of the time and so for me whenever i was you know five six seven eight it, it registered differently and i developed like my own coping mechanisms and one of them was to isolate in and to not talk and to not um i had a very difficult time connecting with people that were my own age i connected better with older people and I, I say all of these things to provide context to explain um, how, as I got older, these coping mechanisms that at one point um, were adaptive, they allowed me to get through to the next day, slowly became maladaptive and were the pretext for my disease. Got it. Wow. So, um, so like during those times, how are you, how are you feeling? I mean, was there... I mean, you didn't know that it was traumatic at the time, but I mean, what was it doing to you emotionally? Well, I, I think that that's the thing, right? Is that like my, my dad is very much the, so my name is Jake. My dad named me after big Jake after, um, the movie with John Wayne in it. He's a huge John Wayne fan. So like he's prescribes to that era of masculinity and manhood, right? Where like you, you don't talk about your feelings and you know, I can remember being young and like asking him things like that, what happens whenever you die and him saying, you shouldn't think about stuff like that, let alone talk about it. And like, you know, we don't talk, we work. And that's like the kind of mentality that um, I was raised with. And, and that's because that's what he was raised with. And, you know, my dad's no saint. He's, he's an amazing man now, but you know, he had his own struggles. He, he drank pretty heavily. And, you know, as I was growing up and not doing things the way that my parents wished that I had done them and not fitting within, you know, the typical box, um, I was very much, you know, punished for those things and punished in a way that was, um, you know, nowadays wouldn't be looked upon as, uh, as discipline. Nowadays would be looked upon as something else. And when my dad stopped drinking, those, those things stopped happening. But like, I, I use these things again, not, not to like point fingers at and to say that like, you know, if this one thing had been different or if that one thing had been different, then all this would change. It's, it's ultimately that like I didn't have the ability to even recognize how I was feeling. So in West Virginia in the 90s, Trevor, how old are you? 42. 42. Okay. So um, do you have any younger siblings? I don't. I'm the baby. Okay. So do you have any younger friends who are like in their 30s who grew up in the 90s when oh, everybody yeah. was getting diagnosed ADHD and ADD? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so, like that, so that's the product of the environment that I was in in public schooling. And if you didn't fit within the box then like you were labeled ADD and ADHD. And like, for me, my behavioral things were because I was finishing my work faster than everybody else. Like when I was in first grade, they had, remember those, uh, those mazes that they used to have you do It's like, start here, don't pass any of these barriers and like find your end to the maze. Yeah. Well, the directions on my maze said, find the shortest distance from start to finish with no barriers. And I just drew a straight line and I handed it over to her. And she's like, Jake, it's, you did not do this assignment, right? I was like, yes, I did. The directions say shortest distance from point A to point B, and it's a straight line. She goes, it said without any barriers. I was like, the only barriers are the ones that we perceive in like first grade language, right? Like barriers don't really exist type of language. Right. Like he can hop over them. And um, I got an F, of course, but like that's the kind of thinking that I was doing at that young of an age, right? It wasn't just to purposefully do the wrong thing. It was because like I was thinking outside of the box. And they didn't know how to public schooling kind of, especially in West Virginia, kind of failed me in that regard when I was that young because it didn't challenge me. Right. Yeah. And then yeah. teachers had like one playbook to run by. And then when you didn't fit that playbook, they sent you home to your parents with a pink slip. And my dad's number one rule was if you embarrass me, I'll embarrass you. Wow. And so like, and, and I'm, I'm saying this stuff and it sounds harsh now, but it's like, you got to understand, like my dad was somebody who was a self-made man, the only like it, it's his reputation was everything he had, you know, got it. And it's like a super small town. And like, and so it's, it's so leave it to beaver. It's crazy. And it's, and it sounds silly when I talk about it, but like when, if you were living in that moment, experiencing those times, like you would understand it's a small tight knit community. Everybody knows everybody like Mayberry style. My dad was the dentist, like the young dentist. And he had a kid who, wouldn't fit the mold and kept on getting himself in trouble. And so they put me into private school. And again, like now I'm just thinking that there's something wrong with me. Right. right? Exactly. And so like, um, it's like, I don't fit in, in the mold here. I, I can't connect with people. Everything I try to do, I, I'm getting in trouble for. So I'm, I'm just a troublemaker. So then I start creating that narrative for myself and I start playing that out. 
And when I was in um, Catholic school, the very first question I asked um, in like one of my religion classes, like a couple of months in, so not the very first question I asked, but the very first trouble I had, um, I was like, why does the Bible have quotation marks if quotation marks imply direct conversation? And the earliest account of Jesus was 40, 40 to 60 years after his death. And the religion teacher didn't like that. And so they kicked me out of religion class. And you can't really stay in Catholic school if you're not in religion class. Right. So um, my dad's next response to that was, is like, if you get kicked out of here, then you're going to military school. Like, we don't know what else to do with you. And when you hear that coming from your parents and you're 12, you know, your first inclination is, is like, you know, now I'm not even welcome in my own home. And so like, I'm starting to think like my parents, the my parents would be better off without me. They don't even want me here. They don't know how to handle me. I'm not doing anything right. And so when I was 12, I had my first thought of taking my own life and I actually acted on it. And my dad walked up in the middle of it. Um, saw me with a belt around my neck, like for lack of a better term, um, Jack slapped me. and was like, think about what this would do to your mother and then turned around and walked right back out. And then we never talked about it again. Wow. And so like that gives an indication of like how mental health was recognized at that point in time in my, in my family. Like we, there was no conversation about it. It was literally like, think about what this would do to your mother, turn around and walked out. And, you know, that showed me in a very sick and weird way he cared. Right. And so I didn't act on it after that, but it did set up a context of like, we don't talk about these things and we don't act on these things. Man. That's unbelievable. I mean, and, and back to the, some of the things you said earlier, I mean, people don't really realize how much traumatic childhood experiences affect the rest of your life. I mean, you've spent some time talking about your childhood. Those are the most formative years. And uh, I've got some similarities there, but I mean, the, the when you have trauma happen, even if it's not direct and, uh, you know, direct kind of abuse, uh, th those things linger and it shapes you at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And like, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And I'm not going to say that like, you know, it didn't like, I mean, <laughs> I was a very angry teenager. Right. And, and, and because of all these, all these things that had happened. Right. And I perceived the world at the time as being against me. Right. So like I, I got very angry, very young and, and I acted out in way, and I was smart. So like I acted out in ways that I probably shouldn't have. And like, and I said things, um, probably to get underneath my dad's skin in ways that I, I shouldn't have. And, and I pushed his buttons. Right. And this is before he stopped drinking. And so I, I, I'm not sitting here doing the like abused credo where it's like, Oh, it's my fault. But like, I'm saying like, we, we always have a part to play in some of this stuff. Right. And so like, you know, there was physical altercations between my father and I, like, I'm not going to sit there and say that there wasn't. Um, I'm also going to say that like there, when it comes to specific traumas and we're talking about, you know, a kid that's, super, super, super young. So, I mean, I'm, I work with, sometimes I work with kids now. And like, one thing that I'm seeing now is, is like, you know, you have a baby. So I'm working with somebody who's like a 13 year old, his oldest sibling's 22. And he feels like his parents have kind of like, just let him be raised by the, by the other siblings. So he kind of feels abandoned. And even though the mom's a stay at home mom, right. He still is perceiving these things. And so trauma is completely and totally relative. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, and, and I'm not somebody who sits there and looks at somebody who, you know, my wife, for instance, her dad passed away when she was 14 and she lost her mother to, uh, to substance abuse for, for a little period in time. And like, um, so it was literally children raising children and that's, that's relative trauma to her. Right. And then there's, it's, it's interesting because there's, I think that we don't give enough credit or not credit, but we don't put enough emphasis on the fact that like, we're experiencing quote unquote traumas every day, every second of our lives. The thing is, is that we either get a better at resolving it and like working through it or be better at hiding it and lying to ourselves that it's not happening. Right. I mean, all those examples you just gave people hear trauma and that they think that it is direct, physical, emotional, mental, like direct tactical. And it, it doesn't have to be that way. It, it, it you know, fear of abandonment and, and just everyday feelings, like you said, every day of our lives, it really, it really can, can impact you. So, yeah, I mean, trauma, yeah. trauma, like you said, relative, 
and it comes in so many shapes and sizes and forms that uh, and I think we're just starting to scratch the surface on on what you know childhood trauma really really yeah. really does to you. And not even trying to go too neurological on it, but like our working memory is stored within our hippocampus. And to sum that up, it's basically spaghetti up there. Like it's not a filing cabinet, it's spaghetti. Like stuff happens, we experience an emotion. Like you can't remember the first time you felt happy and how you identify that feeling. And you can't remember the first time you feel sad and how you felt that feeling. Like you don't have those memories accessible to you because it's stored within your hippocampus. And so for us, the we can't, we have a difficult time searching back through our memory and figuring out when was the first time I experienced sadness, fear, abandonment, but we all know what those feelings feel like, which means that we felt them at some point in time. Right. Yeah. And so like trauma is extremely relative. And, and for those people who can identify their early childhood trauma, that just means that you felt it more intensely than others. And it's not right. It's not wrong. It's that you can identify it. And so once we can identify it, it's our responsibility to learn how to work through it. And it took me years to figure that out. And everything I was doing was in an effort to try to reconcile that abandonment, right? Because what I was talking about in the very beginning of our conversation, as I said, when I came home with a 90%, my parents said, you left 10% of the information behind. So I always had this strong desire to measure up to their standard, whether it was real self-imposed or, or, or whatever it may be. Like I had this idea of how they wanted my life to look and I wanted to live up to that. So when I got out of you know, when I was in high school, I was a varsity athlete. I was in jazz band. I was an all-state jazz musician. I was in show choir. Um, and that's because you got out of school to take trips and stuff. And I thought that was pretty cool. But like, I, I, was, did. I was too. I was yeah. Too. I mean, I just liked leaving school for, for a week, weeks to an end. And then I was, um, I was an academic excellence team. I wrestled. I did, um, I did track. I did all these things. Right. Um, and it's because I didn't know who I was. Right. And like, and I was trying to figure it out. And then, you know, I get accepted into dental school at age 18, not because I wanted to be a dentist, but because I wanted to prove my dad to, that I'm just as good as you are. Wow. And when I realized that that's what I was doing, you know, lo and behold, on a, on an acid trip, um, I also, because I played music, like that was the thing ultimately that led to a massive understanding of my emotion was me being able to express myself through music. And understand that I'm like very unhappy, right? And like, I dropped out of school. Uh, I, I toured around with a band. I wound up getting my recording engineering degree. Um, all the while, like fueled in like a huge drug haze. Um, and at this time, it was like cocaine, um, psychedelics, a lot of alcohol. And you know, I remember looking over at the recording engineer beside me, and he had done like some really amazing stuff. And I remember thinking, like, man, this guy's like frozen in time he had like acid wash jeans, like ripped holes in the knees. Um, he had like long hair, but he was bodying on top and wearing a baseball cap and a flannel. I'm like, this guy looks like he came in. He, he looks like he hasn't grown at all as an individual since the day he came in. And I didn't have a lot of like knowledge and understanding that like, you know, that's that guy's personal story. It has nothing to do with the industry. But at that time, because I was on a lot of substances, I was like, man, I need to go back to college because that's where you grow up like how silly that thought was, but like, that's what I thought. Right. And so I had a 0.0 because .0, I didn't drop out of school the right way. I just stopped going. So I had a 0.0, .0 and I wanted to get back into school. So for the next three years, I worked my butt off. i um, getting 4.0s overloading courses. Um, I lost my scholarship at first because uh, I had the Promise Scholarship, which is a West Virginia University thing. It's a West Virginia thing where if you graduate high school, they used to have it. If you graduated high school and you had a decent um, ACT score, then like you could ultimately like go to college for free. And I lost that ability because I got a 0.0. .0. And so I had to like earn scholarships back, overloaded courses, got involved in student government, worked full time. Um, and then eventually like wound up graduating with a 3.8, was student body vice president of WVU. I'm a highly decorated National Model United Nations delegate and um, got accepted into law school. And so I kept thinking that I was like, man, I'm finally going to like make my parents proud this time, right? Like when I, when this happens, they'll be proud of me. You know, when I become student body vice president, then they'll be proud. Like when I graduate with a 3.8, then they'll be proud. When I get into law school, then they'll be proud. And what kept happening was, is that like, I kept trying to fill things into that hole and, and nothing was working. And all the while in the background, there's just this substance abuse 
that's that's festering and growing deeper and larger and, and more ugly um, with each thing that I try to fill up each accomplishment. Cause I'm, you know, I, I'm in, I, I overdo everything. There's no halfway for me. Like if I'm into it, I'm into it all the way. Right. And, and that works positively and negatively for me. So, so I, like, so at the, yeah. So at the, at the time when you, when you said, I need to go back to school and need to grow up. Yeah. Uh, the, the drugs and the alcohol didn't, didn't stop. I mean, did you, did you put them away f- for a while at all? Or was it just it's hard, brewing? It's really hard to explain because like, I always had this self-awareness and, and like this clarity, like I call it forethought and, and, and I, it's not anything new, but it's like, I have this ability, I think to like, see how things are going to play themselves out in, like months in the future. And so like, I remember having this stint with cocaine and um, it was like probably like two months. And all of a sudden I realized, I'm like, man, I need to stop. Like this is getting nuts. I spent way too much money on this. And if I keep doing this, this is what's going to happen. And I saw two, two or three like distinct paths of what was going to happen. So I just stopped doing cocaine. Like just stopped. Really? And then, yeah. And then um, when I was doing LSD a lot, I had this one experience where I was like, man, this is an amazing experience. And if I keep um, using uh, acid, I'm just going to keep trying to chase this feeling. Like nothing's ever going to compare to this trip. It was a good trip. I've had a few bad ones, a lot of good ones. I don't want to have another bad one. I should just end it here. And I stopped, just stopped doing it. So like, I always ha- never touch it again. And then like, I had a really bad experience with ecstasy one time. I was like, I'm, if, if I get through this, I'm never going to touch it again. Um, Cause I don't want to feel like this again. And then I never touched it again. And so like, I always had this ability to kind of like cut myself off from certain things the thing is, is that like, I, I've also always overdone it. Right. So like when I did go back to school, I was, uh, I wasn't the guy who like, you know, they talk about people who go through and they close down bars. It's like, oh yeah, I went out and I drank. And then like with the group of friends that I went with, they all went home and I met up with another group of friends and I closed down another bar. Well, like I'm the guy who would go to that other bar, meet people who I didn't even know, make friends with them, close down another bar and then meet somebody else who just so happened to be going back to their house, pick up a 30 rack, go there, and then try to take four or five with me and walk home. Like that's the kind of alcoholic that I was. So like when I say like there was no, there was an overabundance in everything. It was, it was everything. It's like, I wanted to, I needed to be busy. I couldn't spend alone time in my own head because one, and I know that a lot of people can probably relate to this. Um, and I'm sure that you can tell now, like my, my brain works a million miles a minute. It doesn't mean I'm smarter than anybody else. It just means it just works faster. Right. And so like, and you can probably hear it in the way that I talk and the way that my, my, sto- my stories tie together. Um, I, I could not at that time spend time by myself because the thoughts that would come up for me would be all these things from my past, all these ways that I was inadequate, all these ways that I wouldn't measure up, um, all these ways that I was unhappy, all these ways that I was angry. Um, so I did everything I could in order to stay busy. How was the relationship with your parents during all this with the the ups and downs with the grades and, and stopped going and, and came back. So it's interesting that you ask The thing is, is that like, I was completely self-sufficient in every meaning of the word. So no, no matter what, like they couldn't really say much, like they knew something was up, but they couldn't really say much at all. Right. Because like, ultimately I was performing. Right. And so like to them, like, yeah, sure. You know, they probably had like their wishes and things, but like I was doing what I needed to do. I I would never, I guess the easiest way for me to put it is, is that my wife asked me this all the time and I always have a hard time putting my finger on it. It's like, I've never been emotionally close to my parents. Okay. Like, and that's not, a knock on them. It's just like, I was forced at a young age to become emotionally resilient on my own. And like, and I developed some really negative coping be- like mechanisms in order to do that. Right. So like during that time, you know, I'm looked back on it now and I know that like I was doing things to try to win their approval, but back then in my head, it was in spite of them. Like, I'm going to show these efforts what's up. Right. You know what I mean? And so like, and it's not that like, I didn't like them or that we didn't get along. It was just like, there was like this weird, like my wife will tell you to this day, like there, there is a competition between um, me and my mom and my dad. And like, and it's just like, that's just kind of like the way that it is. And it's interesting now because it's healthier. Right. And it's not hidden and it's, um, 
and it comes from a place of love and understanding, but it took us years to get here. Year, years of me being healthy to get here. So, so back when you're on top of your academics and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and you're kind of shutting drugs down one by one as you amazingly are able to do that, which just mm -hmm. blows my mind. Oh, so, trust me, it blows mine too when I talk about it. <laughs> so let's continue. What, uh, so really what winds up happening is that there's this cross juncture where I stopped doing all substances for a while because I'm, I'm gearing up to um, take the LSAT. And so I stopped doing everything. And it's like this random two two week period. And I'm just trying to get a better score so I can get a um, a higher uh, scholarship approval from the school that I chose. And um, because I'm student body vice president, it pays for X amount of my schooling. I'm trying to get more schooling paid for for a higher LSAT score. And like I'm driving home one day, and I get promoted to um, department manager. So I'm running like running like my own suit store at this point. Um, I just was named student body vice president, and I'm about to take this test. And I'm driving home and it's like a one mile drive and I've been clean for like maybe like a week and a half, two weeks and not intentionally, just like, it's like, I'm going to take this test. So I'm not gonna have anything to screw it up. So I just stopped doing stuff and I had this massive panic attack and I'll, I'll always remember because it's the first time I ever experienced one. And all of a sudden I feel like I'm having a heart attack and I can't breathe and it's miserable. And I, I remember like just pacing up and down, calling 911, the ambulance showing up, my neighbor's a paramedic. He sees me laying out in the middle of the street with like a bottle of water on my chest, trying to calm myself down, approaches me with like a gun, which throws me into even more of a tailspin. Oh my gosh. And, yeah. And all over a panic attack because I can't register what's happening. Right. And so like, I'm in the back of this um, ambulance and the, and the, uh, the paramedics like, Jake, you're going to be fine. And I'm like, no, I'm not like, you're just telling me that. So I don't die in the ambulance. You have liabilities. And if I die in the ambulance and like, you could be held responsible. And he's like, son, I tell people that are burned 95% of their body. They look at me and they ask if they're going to make it. And I tell them, no, why would I have any problem telling you? Jeez. That was like a reality check. And I kind of re relaxed a little bit. And then he told me what my heart rate was and it picked back up again. And so it didn't stop. And, and then long story short, it was like, that was my very first panic attack an attack from anxiety. And I was like, I sure as heck do not like that. And I'm never going to feel that again. And I, and I wouldn't feel it whenever I was using. So I, my deduction was that I needed to, to drink in order to relax, right? I need to like have these drinks at the end of the night in order to chill and relax and like not feel that way. And so long story short, I was, um, I kept drinking, which then I believe like made me more susceptible to trying more things. And when I was on this trip for National Model United Nations, um, there was this kid, he was like 18 years old and I saw him smoking a bowl and I walked over to him and I was like, Hey, can I hit that? And he goes, yeah, sure. And so I smoke weed with him and we're on the bus and I look over and I see him crushing up this little blue pill and snorting it. And he catches me looking at him and he's like, do you want some? And I was like, no dude. And like, I was some sort of like pedestal drug addict. I'm like, I'm not going to put anything up my nose. that isn't cocaine. And, uh, and he's like, well, you can smoke these. And for whatever reason, I was like, really? And like my, I'd like Scooby-Doo, like my ears turned around. I was like, you can smoke them. And he goes, yeah. And he's like, I was like, show me. And so he showed me how he did it. And then uh, I smoked those. And for the very first time, I had complete control of my faculties, like my, my mind. And that restless thought, my brain spinning a thousand miles a minute, all slowed down. And I felt like for the very first time, I was on par with other people. Was that Adderall? Uh, actually it was, um, Percocet 30. Okay. And it just did something for me that nothing else did for me. And it calmed me down. And I felt like I, I was better. And like, I spent a whole week with like the top minds, um, from multiple countries performing and outperformed them became like, um, you know, I was the outstanding delegate from, for that competition. It was, it was a very false disillusionment because it made me feel like that, like it made me better. And for five or six days, I was using this pill every single day, like multiple times a day. And when I was coming back from that trip, I'd done these before. I'm used to feeling like super tired. And um, I was like, something's up, something's wrong. And I could like feel it in my gut. And as we were getting off the bus, that kid looks at me and he goes, you know, if you ever need any more of those, 
And looking back on it now, it's so clear what happened. He's like, if you ever need any more of those, all you have to do is call. He didn't say if you ever want any more. He said, if you ever need any more. And it didn't register at the time. And I went home and I told my sister, who was living across the street from me, um, what all happened. And she's like, you can, she's like, yeah, you smoked blues. And I was like, what? And she goes, yeah. She's like, I didn't know you could smoke them. She's like, I snored them. And I was, and I didn't know she was using those at the time. And so she, I was like, she goes, show me how you smoke them. Mistake number one in my drug addiction, right? I, uh, I started using with my little sister and I showed her how to smoke them. And then I, as soon as I hit that with her, those feelings that I was feeling went away. And she's like, yeah, it's what I thought. You're addicted to opiates. And within four days, I'd been addicted. I'd grown addicted to Percocet 30s. And that started a year and a half where I, I didn't, there wasn't a day that I didn't use. Wow. That's amazing. It's amazing how it can just, it can just, I, I was never an opiate guy, so I can't relate, but I've heard dozens and dozens of stories like that, but you know, for it to take you that fast. Four days. Yeah. That's crazy. And the thing that sucks for me, right. Was that it wasn't so much, it wasn't so much that like the pain was so unbearable that like, I couldn't have not gone through it. It was that I was in meetings with university officials every day. I was sitting inside of um, law school classes every day. I had a store that I had to run every day. Like I couldn't afford to get sick in my mind at that time. Like I had too many responsibilities to feel like that. So that's how I justified using. So did you keep it together for that year and a half? I mean, yeah, that's what's really shocking is, is that for a year and a half, um, I had it pretty much together. And then when I approach that next year, um, that second half of the year, what happened was, is that I had a teacher and just by happenstance, I wound up staying in this class and it's called cyber law. My mom's an information technology, cybersecurity expert for the nation. Like, I mean, like when I say like the expert, I mean like the expert, she writes the policy enforces the policy helps like department of justice, department of energy. She's amazing at what she does. And, um, I thought it was cybersecurity. Like we're going to, you know, prosecute black hat hackers and stuff. It's going to be cool. And that wasn't what it was. It was online copyright. And I was so loaded. I forgot to withdraw from the class. So I just stuck in this class by accident and I'm not a stupid guy. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of smart. And so I'm sitting in this class, I'm doing well, I'm performing well. And they try to do what's called the Socratic method in law school where they try to embarrass you. And I've, you know, no one could ever really embarrass me um, in those courses because like, I think pretty logically. And so I'm sitting in this class and I all of a sudden get this note. I've never talked to this teacher one-on-one ever. And it's just a sticky note that's on my desk. And it says, we need to talk after class. And so I'm just like, okay. And I give her the thumbs up and I go up to her and she pulls out this sheet of paper and on the sheet of paper, it's, she just goes, I've been watching you and I want to tell you something. And I was like, okay. And she goes, tardy, 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 tardy on time. Tardy, 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 tardy on time. Tardy, 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 tardy on time. She's like, Jake, you're not going to pass this class because you're not going to be able to take the final because you've been tardy too many times. If you're tardy one more time, you will fail this course. And that's a shame because you have the highest test grade average in here. And you pick up on nuances that even I don't understand. She's like, so what's going on? Is everything okay? And I said, I have this ability to like see forethought and, and like see the, the roads laid out in front of me. And so I saw one road where I accept the help that she's offering. I let somebody into my world. I, I explain for the first time. I like go against what my dad told me about suffering in silence as a man and let somebody in and deal with it now and just figure it out. Or I pull myself up by my bootstraps, C's get degrees. I'll be fine. Um, I don't tell anybody. Sure. People will probably talk about me and stuff, but whatever, just move on. I have one year left here and I'll just deal with it whenever I have to deal with it somewhere down the line. And I chose the other hand and I told her everything. Really? And yeah. And when I did, when I did, it was like for the first time ever, you know, I thought that I felt this like relief whenever I took that pill, but I felt like real relief, like a huge elephant came off of my chest. Was she, how was she when you, when she, when you told her? She said, I'll never forget it. She goes, the reason why I'm able to have this conversation with you is because somebody else helped me. Wow. And so 
she took a huge leap of faith, especially in a law school environment to, to question somebody on whether or not they have that issue. Right. Like, cause I could have sued her. Oh yeah. And like, and she took a huge leap of faith that like, you know, that she knew what was going on and that I was going to open up about it and I was going to be receiving of it. And, and I was, and I told her everything and I was like, now what? And she goes, well, now we have to go tell the Dean. And so seconds after telling somebody my whole story, I have to turn around and go tell somebody else and let somebody else in another complete stranger. And so I do. And again, met with nothing but compassion. And they set up like a seven year plan for me. And I'm like, now what do I do? And they're like, well, now you have to go tell um, your parents. And for me, that's like trigger words. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. And then they're like, well, there's no other way. Like you, your parents want you happy and healthy. And right now, are you either of those things? And the answer was no. And that was a Tuesday. And my mom came up to watch a football game on a Thursday. And I remember holding her by her knees and like getting down on mine. And, and I looked her in the face and I was like, mom, uh, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with addiction and I'm heavily addicted to opiates and I don't know what to do and I need help. And that was just like, what the heck is going on? Cause like on paper, yeah, sure. I may have like done some stuff, but like, it looked like I had my crap together. Right. And they knew at that moment that if I'm admitting that I have this issue, and again, like I told you, I was using with my younger sister, they're like, she definitely has this issue. So I just blew the lid on the whole operation for both of us. Dang. How'd that go? Uh, like a lead balloon as far as what my sisters and my relationship went. But like um, what wound up happening was is that my sister wound up going Florida treatment. And my parents thought that like I could go home and I just needed, I said, I just needed help to get through the withdrawal. And what wound up happening was, is that after about a week, um, of course I had relapsed um, like majorly. And so after I had relapsed, I wound up uh, going to a facility in Tennessee. And when I went to that facility in Tennessee, the very first thing that I did is I went and uh, started comparing myself to everybody else that I was around. So like in my mind, I was like, man, I'm in law school. I have all this stuff going on. I'm not, I'm not somebody who's been to jail. I'm not somebody who lived underneath of a bridge. I haven't been to 13 treatment centers. I didn't overdose. Do I really belong here? Like, is my addiction really that bad? And I instantly started separating myself from everybody else. The exact same thing that wound me where I was, right? Like believing I wasn't like anybody else, not being able to connect with people was the same thing that kept me from getting healthy. And so I just dismissed everything that everybody said because I'm like, I'm not like you. I'm different. So what was it that kicked you in the, in the shape? <laughs> I was, so long story short, um, I dismissed everything everybody said. My counselor or therapist was, um, he wasn't sober. And so when he kept telling me, you know, you need to do these things in order to stay sober, I'm like, dude, you're not sober. Like, how are you going to tell me how to stay sober if you've never done it yourself? And so I just dismissed everything he said. I'm um, already planned to relapse went back home, um, instantaneously relapsed and my using quadrupled. And so at the peak of my addiction, I was using 30, 30 milligram Percocet a day, every single day. And yeah, it was pretty bad. Like I'm lucky that my organs didn't shut down. And for me, the kicker wasn't even whenever I got caught the second time, um, lying about it and everything. The kicker was whenever I was on the airplane on my way back to that same 30 day treatment center. And I took 30, I took 30 of them with me because I had my, I had to use for the day. And um, so anyways, I'm sitting in this airplane bathroom and I'm smoking off a of foil and I'm waving the, the smoke away from the smoke detector. And I have this epiphany. I'm like, man, if I get caught right now by a U.S. federal air marshal, I'm not in any state line because I'm in airspace, right? Too high to be in any state line. So that this is a federal crime for every pill I have at seven years. And I have 20 some pills in my pocket. I'm going to jail for a very long time. I was like, I have a problem. And I smoked anyway. That's whenever I realized I had an issue that had to be addressed. Cause like I knew it was the very first time that I, I used that logic, like that forethought. And I went against it and I was like, I have a problem. And so like, I was so loaded. I, I did like 30 of those pills in six hours. And like, I couldn't even sign the intake paperwork. Whenever I went in, I went in on the 12th of January. I don't count that as my sobriety date. I count the day that I woke up and remember signing the date, which is the 14th, January 14th. That's my sobriety date. And so 
when that happened, I remember going and seeing that same therapist. I requested the same therapist. And he said, Jake, what's going to be different? And I said, me, I'm what's going to be different. And he goes, what do you mean? And I was like, if you tell me to hop on one foot, jump up and down, pat my head with one hand and rub my stomach with another, and you tell me to do it for an hour, I'm going to do it for two, because that's how serious I am about getting sober this time. And so there was no judgment, no judging against other people. You were in it to win it. At that point in time, it didn't matter to me what other people were doing because like they tell you in your 30 day treatment center, they're like, you know, one of you is going to be dead. The other one's going to be in jail. You'll be lucky to be sitting in the seat again. Statistically speaking, two of you will be successful out of this group of 40. And I'm like, I'm not about the statistics. I'm an empirical analysis, like political science, empirical analysis major. My job is to discredit your statistics. So like, I don't care what other people are doing. I know what I'm going to be doing. And like, I'm going to do whatever it takes. And just simply out of, you know, in my own opinion, it's like, I don't know what's going to work. So I'm going to do everything that anybody suggests until I figure out what's going to, what I need to do to maintain this day in and day out for years. And like, luckily I found my own recipe and like, I went to, you know, an amazing program that didn't put me on a bunch of meds, helped me get off of medications, taught me about the importance of like structure, routine and discipline and physical activity. And you know, and I, and I just kept building on it from there. And, you know, now I'm blessed enough to the point where like, I teach other people how to make these transitions because the number one thing that I've seen that winds up hurting people as I call it a journey from zero to five or six to 10. So like zero, luckily I never hit zero. I don't even know if I hit like a one, um, maybe was sitting at a two, but zero is like when you're dead or like when you have died and you come back to life or you're sitting in jail or whatever, you're like, you're not allowed to participate in life. That's a zero. One is like, you know, you're functioning, like you're biologically functioning or like you're able to, to kind of like move within society. But like five is whenever you're like taking care of your basic necessities, right? Like you have a job, you're, you're, you're doing the things that you need to be doing day in and day out. That's a five. And I believe that people can get from zero to five. Some people can do it in two weeks. Some people can do it in 30 days. Some people can do it in, you know, in, in six months. It doesn't matter. But that journey from zero to five is fast for a lot of us. And I think that what winds up happening is, is that, you know, we perceive things like, oh, when I get my job back or when I get the car or when I get this, that's whenever it's all going to be good. And we envision those things as the 10. Like when I get custody of my kid, when we envision those things as a 10, but in reality, it's just a five. We're just doing what we should be doing at the age that we should be doing it at in the fashion that we should be doing it. That's a five. And like, and when that reality sets in and people realize that there's a whole nother level to this game and it's six to 10, and it takes a lifetime, I think people get really discouraged. And so I think that's why some people we find, we call them chronic relapsers. But I think that really is that like that second part of the journey is really difficult for some people to wrap their heads around. Like, how do I stay motivated to continue to pursue a 10 day in and day out? And that's really what I've been focusing on lately has been helping people stay motivated, stay the course and learn how to self-motivate to accomplish their 10 lifestyle. And like, and how do you reach these mile markers day in and day out to know that you're on the right path of doing that? So you ended up choosing this as a career. Yeah. Um, I remember going back to law school cause I, I had reached my time limit and I had to go back and, um, I just met my wife. So she was my wife at the point, but, um, I just met my wife and she, you know, I went back to go find that teacher and tell her what it was that I was doing and that I was planning on coming back to law school. And I'm like telling her about what happened to my life and how she saved my life. And she told me, you know, what's really interesting is she said that that's the greatest accomplishment she's ever had in her entire teaching career. That was one thing she told me. She wound up retiring the next year. Um, the second thing is that she looked at me and she said, why are you coming back to law school? And I was like, well, because, you know, I've got to finish what I started. And she's like, you just told me that you're like saving lives. See, I've worked admissions counseling for years now. Um, I've been a part of thousands of people's recovery journeys. I'm a peer recovery coach, a certified drug and alcohol counselor. Um, I've, I've done a lot in terms of helping people. And I never looked at it like, you know, I'm saving lives before. I didn't. I didn't think about it the way that like I thought about my own story. I didn't think that other people thought of me in that same way. Like, sure, I had heard it, but it didn't quite register at the time. And in that moment, I realized like, you know, sometimes some people, you know, there's a saying like, some people are born with greatness. Some people have greatness thrust upon them and other people fall into greatness. Right. And like, what 
I'm not saying greatness, but I'm saying that I think that my life path, I, I think it was thrust onto me. I don't think like life has kind of happened for me in a way that I just kept doing what people suggested. So like I became a housing manager the day before I graduated my treatment program. Um, two months after I graduated, they typically want you to wait a year. The owner of the program called me and said, we're building up an admissions department. Um, I want you to come help build it up before you go back to school. And so I just took, I just took the opportunity to go and, and do that. And so when these things started happening and materializing for me, I just kept taking the next right indicated step as what was presented as an option. And I remember seeing my grandfather who was, you know, really, really, really integral in my life. And he wound up getting diagnosed with cancer and it was the last conversation I had with him healthy, like completely clear minded. And, you know, he looked at me and he said, Jake, you know what? You'll never have to come back to West Virginia. I was like, if you're happy and you're doing what you feel like that you should be doing, you know, just keep doing well. And like I said, like I spent this whole time, like looking for approval from somebody. And like, and in that moment, I realized that like the only approval that really matters is my own. Right. And, and it took me years to get there three, three years. And when, I, when that epiphany hit me and I had that conversation with him and like, he was wise beyond his years. He was an amazing man. And, you know, I realized all of a sudden it's like, you know, I should just give this thing a go and like let life happen for me because every time I've tried to do it my way, um, you know, I wind up not doing so hot. <laughs> and so like very miserable. And so, you know, I, nowadays what I do is, is that like uh, things happen and then I think that we're presented choices and I just try to use my ability of foresight to make the best choice for myself um, based on what's being presented. I don't try to like force events into happening for me. Um, I just try to make the most of the opportunities that present themselves. And so, you know, that's a very long winded way of saying that, like, I, I have a higher power and a connection with it. And I believe it works in my life every day. Yeah. So you uh, started your own place, right? Yeah. So, I mean, what I do is I do peer recovery coaching. I have my own business. And essentially, I mean, I have clients in, in New York. I've had clients in Australia. Um, I have clients all over the U.S. And primarily it's me and I work with one other coach um, who actually had more time than I had clean. We went through the same program. Um, really cool guy. And as of right now, it's he and I. And really what we're doing is, is that we're trying to help people understand that journey from six to 10 and not view it as you know, something that's daunting or adversity, or really view it as something that's worth overcoming and like finding beauty in the challenge and finding growth through adversity. And, you know, every conversation I've ever had with anybody that's ever had any time sober. And, and I've tested this theory thousands of times. And, I, you know, I, I've had the ability of having conversations with people in the beginning stages of addiction for over five years. And the stories always wind up being very, very, very similar. There's three things that ultimately wind up having people relapse. The big scary relapse monster does not exist. It doesn't. Three things happen. It's not the, the major life event that takes place that winds up making it easier for you to say yes, right? It's gradual degradation of moral fortitude. And what I mean by that is that we stop practicing self-discipline. We stop practicing self-love. And we stop practicing self-awareness. Like little tiny things, micro habits that we do day in and day out, keep our mental state clear and keep us on the right path. And like long before we ever pick up a drug or long before that big event ever happens, there were smaller events, things that we compromised on. Stuff like, oh, I'm not gonna make my bed today. And then it turns into a week. Things like, oh, I'm, I'm just gonna snooze the alarm clock a handful of times and I wake up five, 10 minutes late. Or I'm just gonna lie about why I was late to work this one time and then it turns into four times. And then the big event happens and then we justify using, and it's because we're, we're not conditioning ourselves anymore. We're no longer in condition. Right. And like, and just like the grand Canyon, it didn't happen overnight. There's a slow gradual erosion of, of the mental walls that we've built against our disease. And I found that this happens time and time and time again. And so what, what I do is, is that I work to help people understand those three concepts 
but give them tools to help them realize that like they're transferable in business and professional life and personal lives and in our deep relationships with one another, mothers, fathers, um, you know, wives, children, and understanding that like we can reverse engineer these goals, develop the self-discipline, have this self-awareness and create self-love in everything it is that we do. And if we do that, relapse just isn't an option. It's just not going to happen. Man. And I found tremendous success in doing that. Yeah, no, that's those are amazing, three amazing things to to concentrate on. So how how are you spending? How do you uh, take care of your recovery? What, what what do you what do you do on a daily basis? <laughs> if I were to sum it up for you, it would be okay. So I do this thing called priority assessment, right? Which means that like if we're living a life in direct proportion to our values and our priorities, then like we're living pretty fulfilled. Right. So my priorities are pretty simple. It's God, my wife, my child, my business. And then like last, but certainly not least other people. <laughs> and so if I'm living my life based on those five things, right. Making sure that I'm, I'm praying and reading and staying in the word and telling people about my relationship with, with God, which I'm doing right now. Right. So I'm living in accordance to my values, my priorities. If I'm respecting, honoring and cherishing my wife every day, if I'm providing a stable environment, teaching and loving my child, right? If I'm, you know, taking care of my own personal health and keep taking care of my own personal business and doing the things that I need to be doing by living my own best product. So taking care of myself physically, mentally, and emotionally, reading, working out, um, talking with other people, getting emotionally um, vulnerable with other people, helping them through their thing. And then last, like other people that happens through surrogacy through everything else that I'm doing. Man, that's awesome. Very cool. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you spending some time with us today. Of course. No, I appreciate it too. I wish that I would have let you talk a little bit more. No, no, no. This is, <laughs> this is your show, man. This is, this is what people want to hear. So, no, I appreciate it. And I, I wish you the best moving forward. And I know you're going to help a lot of people. Thank so, you. I appreciate it. Yeah. We'll help them together. There you go. You got it. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.